Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. Andrea Askowitz, and this is Writing Class Radio, where you'll hear true stories from the students in our class and tips on how to write your own stories. Today, we're talking about why we put ourselves out there in writing and in love when so often we get rejected. Oh boy, this is terrifying. Okay. The truth is, I want to be seen as someone that cares, someone that's successful and smart. I want to be seen as special. Just like that, 15 years of dread and fear evaporated. Make the distance all more true. So I'm sitting in the studio with co-producer and student in the class, Allison Langer, who's also telling stories in today's episode. She asked me about my current rejection. All right, so, hey, have you heard from your agent? No. (laughs) Fucking word. Why are you laughing? (laughs) It's been eight fucking weeks since I sent her my book. And four weeks ago I called her. And I was like, hi. <laughs> Got any news? Uh, ouch. It's so oh, bad. I don't want to laugh at you, but I mean, fuck, it took you how many years to write? Okay, well, that's what she said to me. I was like, Stephanie, I've been waiting four weeks. And she said, Andrea, I've been waiting five years. Which I I'll, actually, that was a good comeback. But I was like, come on. How do you like it? Are you going to be able to sell it? What's going on? I need to know that you, that you love it, that you love me. And she was like, you have to separate yourself from your work. And I was like, no, I can't. There's no way to separate myself from my work. My work is me. So why didn't I just write in my journal? Why did I put myself out there? I'll tell you why I do it. I love the process of writing because it helps me work out what I think and how I feel. But writing just for myself is not enough. I also want to share what I think and feel with other people. I want someone else to think, hey, yeah, I get you. I want to feel connected, which I think is the same as saying, I want to feel loved. Also, I know the consequences of not putting myself out there are so much bigger and so much worse. We'll get to that later in today's show. Allison tells two stories in today's show. The first one she submitted to Modern Love, a column in the New York Times. Hundreds of people submit stories to Modern Love every week, so hundreds of people get rejected. Allison's story got rejected, which is the subject of the second story she tells. Allison's first story is sad and recounts the loss of her daughter, which you may have heard in our very first episode. She's reminded about this loss again while riding in an ambulance with her boyfriend. This is an entirely different story. I'll just say that we all write about the same situations in our lives because these situations come up in our stories in different ways. If you're headed to a work meeting, you might want to listen to something else, especially if you're not wearing waterproof mascara. My boyfriend Gerald is madly in love with his new car. He tells strangers, friends, anyone who will listen how much he loves his Tesla. It's shiny black, and fully loaded. The first night he got it, he spent two hours in the garage tinkering with the full-size computer on the dashboard. He ran a cloth over all the fingerprints, inside and out, and opened and closed the trunk. 
I was asleep when he came up to bed at 10.30, but he woke me with a kiss and whispered, I have not been this excited about anything in so long. I love this car. I rolled over and thought, he loves his car? We've been together for two years and he can say he loves the car, but he can't say he loves me. I tell him all the time how much I love him. I send texts midday that say, I'm crazy in love with you. I leave I heart you notes under his windshield wipers in the gym parking garage. I cut out love notes from famous people and leave them on the nightstand. The latest one was from Maya Angelou. I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. He just smiles or hugs me or texts back with a smiley face. A few months ago, we were talking about a mutual friend, and he said, Oh, John, I love that guy. I asked, You love John? Anyone can say they love you, he said. I think I show you. The next day, we were coming home from showing off the car to my dad. We were in two cars, and Gerald flew by me on Bird Road, going 100 miles an hour. I shook my head. He's so going to get a ticket. When he jumped out, he was pumped up. Holy shit, did you see that? That baby's smooth. He was parked in the street, and I motioned to the garage. Go for it. I know you want to plug it in. Then I walked into the house thinking he'd probably be out in the garage for a while. Halfway up the stairs, I heard a crash, then the sound of crushing metal. My first thought was that he misjudged the amount of space to the washer and dryer at the back of my garage. The nose of the Tesla is longer than the nose of my Volvo. Then I heard more crushing and ran. Gerald's body was bent over the center space and onto the passenger seat. I thought he was banging his arms on the seat in disgust for wrecking his car, but as I got closer, I could see his body convulsing. I ripped open the door and grabbed his head with both hands. There was foam dripping from his mouth onto the seat, and he was unconscious. I tilted his head back and breathed into his mouth. Then I called 911. My boyfriend's having a seizure. Please come. The woman asked for my address. I told her, please hurry. Help is on the way, ma'am. Please don't hang up. I'm putting the phone down. I need to lift his head, I told her, and began talking to him. I said, wake up. Wake up. I'm here. Breathe. I love you. Breathe. I patted the side of his face. Don't you die on me. His eyes opened and he tried to speak, but his words were slurred. The police pulled up. It seemed like less than 60 seconds since the 911 call. An officer approached the garage. I was half in, half out of the car. My right knee was on the driver's seat, my left foot on the ground for support. My arms were holding up my 185-pound boyfriend's limp body. The policeman reached into the car and reclined the driver's seat. While trying to position his body, Gerald jerked back. He looked at the cop with fight and confusion. A streets of New York City childhood exposed in that second. It's okay, you had a seizure, I said. The policeman is here to help us. Gerald searched my eyes. Baby, I'm here, I said. And I saw an eight-year-old boy unsure of whom to trust. The rescue truck arrived within minutes. Three stocky firemen jumped out and approached the garage. By then, Gerald was alert but groggy. He stepped out of the car and the man helped him to the gurney. I ran inside to grab my purse, then climbed into the rescue truck beside him. Gerald handed me his wallet, and I gave the paramedic his insurance info and recounted the story. Has he ever had a seizure? The paramedic asked. 
Yes, I said, then looked to my boyfriend for more information. It was Lyme-related, Gerald said. It's been five years since the last one. I was shaking, but pretending for Gerald that finding him like that, seeing his new car smashed into my washer and dryer, and sitting in a rescue vehicle was all no big deal. I couldn't push aside thoughts of the last time I sat inside a rescue truck. It was five years before. I was in the front seat, and my 16-month-old daughter had just choked on her lunch and was on a gurney in the back. Please no, please no. I had said out loud over and over while we sped to Miami Children's Hospital. I had no idea if my daughter was breathing, but she had to be breathing. When they moved her into the ER and left me in the hallway, I knew she was breathing. When I asked the nurse if I could be with my daughter so she wouldn't die alone, I was sure I was being dramatic because of course she was breathing. I waited for the nurse to say, oh honey, she's not dying, but she didn't say anything. She led me into the ER where my daughter lay limp. There were eight people surrounding her tiny body. One pumped a bag with oxygen. Another shot the epi into her leg, and another shocked her heart with paddles. There was a doctor directing these people. The others just stood by looking down at her body, then at the doctor, and then at me. I spoke to her while positioning myself inches away from her pale face. Mackie, wake up, wake up, I'm here, mommy's here, breathe. I love you, breathe. When her heart finally began to beat, the doctor said, got it. I looked up at the doctor. She's okay? He said, we got a heartbeat. Gerald gripped my hand as I sat next to him in the back of the rescue truck. I was asked his social security number, his insurance information, and his health history. I knew none of these things. I had never driven him to a checkup. I had offered many times, but he always had a reason why it was better for his cousin to take him. She's right here in the office. She has nothing better to do. As the truck pulled away from my house and the siren began, tears filled my eyes and ran down my face. The sound of a siren always takes me back to my daughter's rescue truck, back to the four-day vigil by her bed, praying and hoping her brain had survived the 30 minutes without oxygen. Back to the moment I climbed on her bed and kissed her goodbye. Back to the day I came home from the hospital without my baby. The hospital did a CT toxicology report and checked Gerald's vitals. It appeared that stress and lack of sleep had been the cause of his seizure. He'd need an MRI to confirm that, but unlike my daughter, he would leave the hospital. When we got back to my house at 3 a.m., Gerald hugged me, stared right into my eyes, and for the first time said, I love you. It has been four weeks since the seizure. I drive him to doctor's appointments and sit in on the visits. I drive him to work and to hang out with friends. His memory is shaky, so I count money for him, jot down notes, and keep his calendar. I feel needed. We're a team. Gerald has slept at my house every night since. He transferred clothes from his house to the chair in my room, then to the closet where I cleared space. His shoes now occupy two shelves. It feels real and committed and vulnerable. 
Now it feels like love. Love hangs around me. That was the story Allison submitted. Her next story reveals what it felt like to put her story out there. I submitted a story to Modern Love two years ago. I worked on the piece in class, then at home. I sent it to a fellow classmate to edit, and then to Andrea to edit again. She said, it's beautiful, send it. I was hesitant to submit, but except for fear of looking like a sucky writer, there was no reason to hold back any longer. Andrea was sure it would get accepted. Months later, I got an email saying they decided to pass. All that work for nothing. I didn't consider submitting elsewhere. I felt rejected. Rejected, like I feel now, sitting at my desk four days after a first date, a coffee date with a guy I met on Match. He said he would call on Wednesday after his kids went back to their mom's. I went to writing class as usual on Wednesday night and kept looking at my phone. I was sure he would check in. The date had gone so well. He was much better looking than his match pictures. Tall, with light blue eyes and a kind smile. He was smart and he talked about his kids just enough. I wore jeans, a white cotton sweater, and flip-flops. My hair was wet from the gym. I tied it into a low bun. I felt comfortable with him. After three hours, he walked into my car and gave me a kiss on the cheek. I texted Andrea, I just had a great date. Now it's Thursday. I was sure he would call. What happened? I sent Andrea a text. He didn't call. She writes back a long list of reasons why he is a complete idiot. You're gorgeous, smart, funny, kind, warm, independent, a great mom. I called my cousin. What am I doing to turn these guys off? She said, if you can't get these guys to call, then I don't know what they're looking for. In moments like these, I question why I put myself out there to be judged and dissected and hurt. I hate match. I'm terrible at it. I rarely get dates, and when I do, they don't call me back. Is it that I have three kids? That I'm too old? Do I have bad breath, or do I talk about myself too much? One guy said I asked too many work questions. Don't they want me to be interested in their work? This writing and dating and waiting for someone to love my work, love me, is so painful. I want to give up. Who cares if I get published? Who needs sex and love anyway? I look around and I see all these very average people being loved by men who have rejected me. I tell myself it's timing or chemistry, but I'm not sure I believe that. Before Gerald, I was single for seven years. It's been almost two since we broke up, and I've only been on a handful of first dates and no second dates. The party I was at last weekend was full of married people and one older single guy. My friend Marilyn pointed him out and said, what about him? He's cute. I said, Grandpa? And I'm 47. I want to be with a man my own age, maybe even a few years younger. I pointed to a really hot guy in his 30s. I said, I like him. Marilyn said, that's your problem. You need to date older men. When I said I don't find older men attractive, she pointed to her husband and said, what about John? Would you date him? John's in his early 50s and he's gorgeous, but I'm no idiot. I said, 
Hell no, I wouldn't date your husband. Ew. Writing and dating are so personal. I read my story in class and I wait for feedback. I walk into Starbucks and I wait for feedback. Do they really like my story or are they just being nice? Was Starbucks guy just being nice when he said he enjoyed meeting me? Was he just being nice sitting at that coffee shop talking and talking to me? Did he know he would never call me again? Gerald left me on New Year's Eve. I was cooking dinner for us. We'd spoken earlier that morning. He said he couldn't wait to see me and celebrate with me. I bought sea bass. He didn't show up. When I called him, I was angry and hurt. Where are you? He said, I'm not coming. Ever. You'll be better off without me. Is that a version of it's not you, it's me? Who says that? You'll be better off without me. Maybe the Starbucks guy is really a shithead, and he thought, this girl's really special. Let me not fuck up her life. She's too wonderful to get involved with. I'll just walk away. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. It's midday. The phone rings, and it's my coffee date. He apologizes for not calling the previous day. Between kids and work, he's exhausted. I believe him, but after I hang up the phone, I think about what I'm looking for in my next boyfriend. Gerald was not perfect, but he was connected to me all the time. He texted and called, and I knew he was thinking about me. Always. I want that. I want to get under someone's skin immediately. I want them to adore me and need me and want to speak to me even when they're exhausted. I want them to see something special in me, like Gerald did. We were good together. Alone on the couch eating pizza and watching Dexter, he was my salvation at the end of a crazy day. I thought he was happy too. When he left, I was crushed. I thought he'd come back like before. I proposed a Tuesday, non-date, secret sex night. It lasted a month or so. Then one day, before he got out of his car to walk into work, he shot himself in the head. Nobody saw it coming. He was 36. I wish I knew what went on in these guys' minds when they opt out, out of life and out of life with me. I wish there was some way to predict the outcome before we go to Starbucks, submit a piece, fall in love. I don't blame myself for Gerald's suicide, but I wish I could have saved him. I can't help thinking that if we had stayed together, he might still be alive but that decision was not mine. I loved him like a motherfucker. I gave him all my love, even when it felt one-sided and uncomfortable. It wasn't a choice. I couldn't help it. Cheryl Strayed says, write like a motherfucker. I love that. I think I'll make that my motto, not just for writing, but for everything. Date like a motherfucker. Love like a motherfucker. Get rejected like a motherfucker. Who's gonna write you a letter? But I wrote it once before Where I professed the things I never did But should have years ago Searching through my sandbox I found what I wrote Although it hurts to read I meant it then Now I mean it even more I can't disregard What pains me the most There was a deep love in the distance That we never reached and won't gonna write you a letter
get rejected like a motherfucker. I guess that's about all we can do. Allison, thanks for being our rejection poster child. If you don't know Cheryl Strayed, she's one of my favorite authors and teachers. She wrote the memoir Wild. The phrase, write like a motherfucker, was her advice to a writer in her book, Tiny Beautiful Things, which is now an advice column in the form of a podcast called Dear Sugar Radio. Here's the thing. If you want to get published, you have to risk rejection. If you want love, you have to risk rejection. Of all the episodes so far, we had the hardest time editing this one. I had a different vision for Allison's second story. I wanted the story to say, rejection in writing and rejection in love are the same. I think the story does say that, but I worry that when Allison tells us her ex-boyfriend committed suicide, the story takes a turn, and that's all the listener will care about. I thought her story could end before she tells us Gerald committed suicide. But Allison told me that cutting the Gerald part at the end felt like I was cutting out parts of her. And I get that. I said it myself. We can't separate ourselves from our stories. We are our stories. If someone doesn't love every part of it, we feel rejected. And Allison felt rejected. Allison and I have an ongoing editorial battle over this podcast. She wants to air our stories exactly as they come out in class. And sometimes we do, like with the writing that comes out of a prompt. But other stories, the ones that have been worked on outside of class and then edited in class, are sometimes then edited further in what we call post. I feel responsible to the listener to give you the tightest, best stories we can. Allison says, but we're a class. So we gave you Allison's story exactly as it came out in class. This is all hard, but not putting ourselves out there could be worse. Next, Anessa, who you may remember from season one, tells this story about a time she missed the bus. But first, a word from our sponsor. Here's Anessa's story called Missed the Bus. I can't even imagine what my life would look like if I were a successful writer or performer. I feel like I resigned on that dream. I feel like I've resigned on the dream of creating a one-woman show. It's just not going to happen in this lifetime. I've put a little work into it. I've written stories for the stage and visualized it. Maybe in my next life, I'll actually have the, de- the determination and the courage to do it. I'm not surprised. I gave up before I started. The first time I gave up was when I was nine. I had seen a post at the local community center for an audition. They were looking for a nine to 12 year old girl. I needed to prepare a song. I spent the next two weeks rehearsing a Madonna song. I can't remember which one, but I would recognize it if I heard it. It was a sad song. I never told my parents about the audition. I only told my best friend, Lenore Kessler. On the day of the audition, I was supposed to take three buses from Lenore's house in Bellevue to some auditorium in Seattle. I missed the bus. I felt guilty, but then I convinced myself that I couldn't sing anyway and had no right to try. I feared total humiliation. I spent years thinking about that missed audition and all of the possibilities it could have produced. Like maybe I would have gotten the part. At the very least, it would have given me faith in my ability to show up for myself 
to show up for my dreams. Gotta get on the bus. Here's your assignment. Same as always. Set a timer for 10 minutes. When the timer goes off, stop. Then read what you wrote into your voice memo on your phone and email it to us at info at writingclassradio.com. Some of your stories will end up right here. Here's the prompt. A time you got rejected. Go. Now write like a motherfucker. There's nothing I can do to write it all new. Writing Class Radio is produced by Diego Saldana Rojas, Allison Langer, and me, Andrea Askowitz, with editorial help from Misha Merrill. Theme music by Adriel Borshansky. Can it be saved? Additional music by Ari Herstand and the Boundary Birds. Check out all our musicians on our website. Writing Class Radio is recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. This episode is sponsored by Bollywood Masala. What we do at Hollywood Masala is we serving you a good home-cooked meal and it's made fresh every day. From the source of all my there's more Writing Class Radio on our website, writingclassradio.com. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. If you don't like the prompt I just gave you, pick one of the daily prompts from our website and time yourself. Then record what you wrote and send it in. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? That works. And there's nothing I can do to write it all anew. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.